The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Next Lord's Day, we will be rolling out our teaching theme for the church year, and we'll be beginning a new sermon series to go along with it. This week, however, I want to return with you to the passage we began to consider last week in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, because it's a chapter that provides some architectonic foundational core principles, some basic fundamental commitments that I believe ought always to characterize the ministry of this pulpit and indeed our Christian lives too. I want us to look at three themes in particular this week. First of all, in the first nine in the first nine verses, the pattern of God's grace, the pattern of God's grace, the way that God works in the life of the prophet Isaiah. There are undoubtedly unique features here. None of us are prophets. Nevertheless, the way God deals with Isaiah is a paradigm. It's a pattern for the way God deals in His grace with all of His people in every age. So, the pattern of God's grace. Secondly, the scope of God's Word. The pattern of God's grace, the scope of God's Word. We're going to scan back across the whole chapter and trace the ways in which this text speaks to us ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the scope of Holy Scripture, the focal point, the center, and the climax of God's Holy Word, the pattern of God's call, the scope of God's Word. And then finally, in verses 9 through 13, the gravity of God's work, the gravity of God's work as the prophet preaches the Word of God given to him by the Holy Spirit God is working in the lives of those who hear Him, and as we'll see, there is a gravity and a solemnity about that work here in this chapter that we ought not to miss. And so, there's our outline. Have you got it? The pattern of God's grace, the scope of God's Word, and the gravity of God's work. Before we go any further, however, let's bow our heads once more and ask for the Lord to help us. Let us all pray. O Lord our God, as Your Word is preached, You disseminate the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. It is the aroma of life unto life. But to those who are perishing, it is the aroma of death, and it leads only to death. And so we cry, who is sufficient for these things? Would you come now and work by your Spirit for your purposes, by your Word, in the hearts of all who hear, that in all this, as in all things, Jesus Christ might have the supremacy, in whose holy name we now pray. Amen. 
Isaiah chapter 6, at the first verse, this is the Word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken in His holy and authoritative Word. Let's think first of all about the pattern of God's grace. The pattern of God's grace. Most scholars today believe that Isaiah chapter 6 really constitutes the prophet's original conversion and call into the ministry. And of course, that immediately raises the question of why his call to the ministry should be located here after five chapters are recorded of the prophet's preaching. If these events <clears throat> happen chronologically before chapter 1, why are they recorded for us after chapter 5, all out of sequence like this? And part of the answer, at least, I think has to do with the way Isaiah links himself with the condition of the people to whom he was sent to preach. Remember what he says in verse 5, "'Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips,' and what? 
I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, their sin and his, they're the same. And the oracles of woe, of divine judgments, due their sin that he's been preaching for five chapters. He says, those same judgments fall on me too. And so, Isaiah sort of represents the condition and the need of the people to whom he was sent to preach. And I think after preaching five chapters of coming judgment, he inserts this remarkable account of his own experience of the grace of God coming to him in his uncleanness and in his lostness and renovating him. He inserts it here to show them however dark your sin, however deserving of the judgment of God if you do not repent, there remains yet hope and mercy and grace. And so he tells his own story that they may see unclean just like he, the path back to deliverance. And uh, so here we get to see in the, in the life of the prophet then, the way of God with a sinner held up as, a, as an example, as a paradigm for every sinner, for you and me. And we can trace that pattern, I think, in, in six moves, six C's, if you like. The first of them we've seen already, we saw it last time as we looked at Isaiah 6, is confrontation. Confrontation. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe fills the temple, and the seraphim in the presence of the glory of God, they, they cannot contain themselves, and they erupt in praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And even the building begins to reverberate in the presence of the holy God. All things respond as God makes His glory known. Angels sing. Creation shakes and trembles in the radiant holiness of the sovereign King of the universe, but bowed before that same holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is really very different, isn't it? Because he is confronted with his sin in the light of the character of God, just as we were earlier in the service, as we read through the Ten Commandments together. Our sin is exposed. We're confronted with the truth about our own hearts. It's uncomfortable. Sin exposing and absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And so, the confrontation leads to another C. Again, we saw this last time, the prophet's confession. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's convicted of his sin. He owns it. Doesn't excuse it. Doesn't blame shift. He owns his sin, and he confesses it without reserve and without qualification. He is self-accusing. I am guilty. 
and I deserve the woe of the divine curse. Confrontation and confession. And wonderfully, again we saw this, didn't we? The Lord responds with a third seed. He comes with cleansing. In verses 6 and 7, one of the seraphim flies to him, having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and presses it to his lips and says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's cleansing. And all of this we've, we considered in some detail last Lord's Day. But look at the text again. Isn't it interesting that it is now, and only now, after these three vital pieces fall into place in his life and experience, it's now that the prophet hears the voice of God himself for the first time. See that in verse 8? Here's the principle. When redeeming grace breaks into our lives, not only does it deal with our sin and our guilt, it unstoppers our spiritually deaf ears so that the Word of the Lord that was a closed book to us for so long, we now hear as God's own voice speaking to our hearts. That's certainly what happens to the prophet here, isn't it? And that's the fourth C, confrontation, confession, cleansing, calling. Verse 8, whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? God calls the prophet into ministry, but not before the confrontation and the cleansing, and uh, the confrontation and the confession and the cleansing. And then there's a fifth seed. You see Isaiah's response to God's call, his own eager commitments. What a remarkable change has taken place in his life. He's gone from woe is me to here I am. He's gone from certainty that his sin excludes him from the presence of God and condemns him in the sight of God's. He's gone from that to a bold willingness to go and give himself in the service of God. Here I am. Send me. I'll go. You'll notice, by the way, he doesn't know anything about God's plan when he hears God's call. He doesn't know where he's going to be sent. He doesn't know what he is going to say. He doesn't know for how long he'll be gone. But none of that matters now that grace has a hold of his heart. He is overtaken suddenly with a readiness to go and say and do whatever God wants for however long God wants, wherever God sends him. Here I am, send me. And then there's one final C, a sixth C. There comes a divine commission. Verse 9, go and say to this people. God sends him and gives him a message and gives him particular work to do. All right, so there it is, the pattern of God's grace working in Isaiah's life. Do, do you see it? Let's think about it for a minute. Think about soldiers. Soldiers don't get to dictate to the commander-in-chief, the times and locations and duration of their deployments. They receive their orders after they enlist. They do not enlist upon condition 
that their orders will align with their preferences and desires. And that is how it is with the pattern of God's grace in the prophet's life and in our lives too. And what a disaster it is when we try to reverse the pattern. That's very often what we do, isn't it? We try to reverse the order of God's gracious dealings with us. We want to start with our doing, our achievement, our service for God. We'd really not, rather not have to face our sin and confess our guilt and submit to divine mercy, to be a, a, a thoroughgoing charity case before God, bankrupt and empty and helpless apart from His grace. No, no, we would rather start with our doing. We, we want God to be impressed by the merits of our contribution to His cause. We, we want to be able to say, look what I did. But friends, listen, God wants nothing to do with our commitment to service. He abominates our best efforts for Him if they do not first rest and arise out of His cleansing grace at work in us. That's the gospel pattern. And it cannot, must not be reversed. You can't serve Him unless you allow Him first to cleanse and pardon you. Please don't get the pattern of God's grace confused. John Flavel, the Puritan, called it the method of grace. Don't get it all in reverse order. It never starts. It never starts in the heights of your accomplishments, my accomplishments. It always starts in the dust of our repentance and the wonder of God's free grace. It's not rooted in our gifts and abilities. It's rooted in His mercy alone. The pattern of God's grace. Do you see it in the text? Do you see it in your own life? Get the order right. Grace always comes first. It must always come first. Secondly, notice what we learn here about the scope of God's Word. The pattern of God's grace, the, the scope of God's Word. Look at verses 9 through 13. In answer to Isaiah's offer to go for God, the Lord commissions him to preach his Word. Go and say to this people. But you'll notice in verses 9 and 10 that Isaiah will preach the truth of God, but the people will not hear or see or understand that message. They will not repent and be healed. You see that? And so, in verse 11, with understandable dismay, Isaiah cries out, well, how long, O Lord? It's how long, O Lord, is the plaintive cry of lament that echoes again and again, especially in the Psalms. When hard providences and divine judgments fall, how long, O Lord? I, I want to know if this is going to end. 
I want to know if there'll be a reversal of fortune, if your policy toward your people is ever going to change. And look at the answer in verses 11 through 13, isn't it? It is not encouraging, is it? He will preach the Word, but without much spiritual success in the lives of the people until, verse 11, their cities are destroyed, and they're all taken away captive into exile by the Assyrians, verse 12, and only a remnant remains, a mere tenth, verse 13. And even this tenth will suffer terribly. God compares their fate to a forest that has been cleared. You chop down the trees, and then you burn the scrub you want to clear the land, that's what you have to do. You burn away the brush that's left over after you've chopped down the terebinth or the oak. That's what's going to happen, even to the remnant of the people of God. Now, I dare say that's not the kind of ministry most aspiring preachers at Reformed Theological Seminary imagine for themselves upon their ordination. Really, it's a gloomy prospect, isn't it? This is how it's going to be from here on out, Isaiah. You're going to go preach your heart out, and hearts will harden in response. But it is not an altogether hopeless picture. You'll notice at the end of verse 13, a stump remains. Even after the tree is chopped down, the holy seed is its stump. That phrase, the holy seed, may ring a bell with you. It certainly rings with significance throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. It is central to the promise of God's covenant of grace, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the seed of David who will reign on his father's throne forever. It's the promise of a coming Redeemer. And passages in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 11.1, for example, take up the imagery here and confirm this is speaking about a coming Savior by whom redemption at last would be secured. 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse, remember, is King David's father. It's talking about a new king who will arise in the line of David to be the deliverer of God's people. So, as grim as the message entrusted to Isaiah was, actually it has its ultimate scope and final uh, sight set upon the arrival of Jesus Christ, Messiah, Savior, and Redeemer. Actually, viewed from the vantage point of the New Testament Scriptures, the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 6 is pregnant with the presence of Jesus Christ. He's everywhere in Isaiah 6. Let me just sketch that out for you very quickly. The Apostle John, in John chapter 12 of his gospel, quotes this passage, Isaiah 6, and tells us Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. Isaiah says he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. But John says the vision of glory that overwhelmed the prophet in the temple 
and made the angels sing and the threshold shake was actually a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his pre-incarnate majesty, here is God the Son reigning as Lord over his people. It's a glimpse, a kind of preview, if you like, of the glory that he now possesses at the Father's right hand as the incarnate God-man, having accomplished salvation for sinners, having risen in victory over the grave. Before him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here is Christ in Isaiah 6 on the throne in verse 1. He's also present on the altar in the middle of the vision, isn't he? That's the meaning of this live coal taken from the altar in verses 6 and 7, by which atonement was made for the prophet's sin. The altar, remember, is the place of blood sacrifice where a substitute dies in the place of a guilty sinner so that sinners might be pardoned. The altar in the temple and all the gory rituals of blood sacrifice that were enacted upon it were designed to teach God's people about the cost that must be paid for sin, the necessity of a substitute who will pay that penalty, and the grace of God in providing a substitute for their pardon. In other words, it was designed to teach them about and prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in whom alone final, true, real, and enduring atonement is made. Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest who enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when atonement was made for Isaiah on the altar in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, Jesus was being preached to him in the types and shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So here is what Christ accomplishes. Do you see it? Jesus was not set before Isaiah as his therapist to make him feel better about his troubles. He was not set before Isaiah as his life coach to give him good counsel on how to do better and try harder next time. He was not given to Isaiah to be an asset manager that he may live the good life in great prosperity. He was presented as his only Savior, who by the sacrifice of himself at the cross makes atonement and satisfaction of the divine wrath, the woe that the prophet knows he deserves. It falls on Jesus and not on him, on Jesus and not on us. Jesus is here in this chapter, isn't he, not just as the final climactic outcome of the preaching of the prophet at the end of verse 13. 
He's present on the throne at the very beginning in verse 1. He's present on the altar right in the middle of the whole drama in verse 6. He's even present in the message the prophet is sent to deliver in verses 9 through 12. You may know the New Testament quotes these words four times to explain why Jesus used parables. John quotes it to explain why so many people did not believe Jesus' message. If the people rejected Isaiah's preaching, he was only presaging Christ, whose preaching was generally unwelcomed. He was despised and rejected of men. Here is Christ in the chapter, present on the throne, present on the altar. We might even say present in the pulpit, and present as the climactic end and focal point of human history. Now, why am I laboring this point? Well, only to make clear what ought always to be the central concern of this pulpit. Remember we said this chapter is about the the great architectonic principles, the, the foundational commitments of our ministry. Well, here is one. We must always, always, always preach Christ because He is the center and the scope of the Word of God. Not me, not you, His person, His works, His words, His ways, His suffering, His sacrifice, His resurrection, His ascension, His glorious reign, His ever living to make intercession for us, His advocacy on our behalf at the Father's right hand, His constant provision of mercy and grace for our every need, His guiding all our steps, His continuing office as prophet, priest, and king, His soon return at the end of the age in victory and in glory. Jesus is all that our hearts really need. So, listen, you can know a good deal about the Bible. You can be well-schooled in the best theology. You can have the catechism memorized You can know all the words of the hymns in our hymn book. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know anything. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have anything. It is not faithful preaching if it does not bring us to Jesus and apply to our hearts and consciences the claims of the Lord Jesus and display to the eyes of faith the person and work of Jesus however eloquent, however witty, however engaging, however insightful, it is not really a fully Christian sermon if it doesn't preach Christ. And so, people of First Presbyterian Church, you must demand that over all the preaching of this pulpit and all the weeks and years to come, this banner always must fly, we preach Christ and Him crucified. I resolve to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing else will do because nothing else will meet the real need of your heart. The pattern of God's grace, the scope of God's Word, finally, the gravity of God's work. The gravity of God's work. Take another look with me at verses 9 through 13. Do you see what 
Isaiah was being told about this ministry entrusted to him, his preaching, which if you scan through the rest of his prophecy, is laden with clear and glorious views of Jesus Christ. It's full of Christ. His preaching will actually be the instrument not of the conversion of many, but of their hardening under the judgment of God. Verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So clearly the turning and being healed is not God's design for Isaiah's first hearers. Rather, he intends by the prophet's preaching to harden their hearts and blind their eyes and stopper their ears so that they will not embrace the message about Jesus Christ coming to save them that is so much the burden of his, of his message. Now, isn't that chilling? Isn't it chilling? Understand, it's not that Isaiah was being sent to preach an obscure, impenetrable message that no one will be able to understand. Certainly, there are challenging portions of Isaiah's prophecy, but if you read through it, you will find Christ over and over and over, wonderful uh, offers of mercy and grace, real hope for repentant sinners, seasons of promised renewal, even glorious vistas of the new creation that is yet to come, all stretching out clearly before your gaze. It is crystal clear in its central message and main concerns. And yet he's being told, for all his clarity, all his grace-filled, Christ-centered preaching, God was going to use his ministry to harden rebellious people's hearts because of their sin. Here's the gravity of God's work. I wonder if you feel something of its weight. The same gospel that brings life, the same gospel becomes an instrument of condemnation for those who reject it. What is it that they say? The same sun that melts the ice bakes the clay. The same truth that softens a heart, the hearts of some, so that they repent and believe, hardens the hearts of others. The same message dripping with good news for the chief of sinners can have these two starkly opposite outcomes. You might remember the Apostle Paul talks about this very same experience in his own preaching ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 15. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So, they both smell the aroma of Christ. Christ is clear in the message proclaimed. And yet, to one we are a fragrance from death to death, and to the other to those who are being saved, of life unto life. Everybody smells the aroma, the fragrance of Christ. But for those who reject the gospel, it is only 
a, a repulsive thing. It's the smell of death, and it results in their death, in their judgments. Just as to others who hear and s- smell the sweetness of the aroma of Christ and respond in faith to them, it is the aroma of life, and it gives them life. What an awesome and weighty thing the preaching of the Word of God really is. He works by it to settle eternal destinies. It's the aroma either of life or of death. He softens and saves the hearts of some and hardens and judges the hearts of others by the same Word as they respond to it. And so, in light of that, don't we need to understand that it is no small thing to shrug off God's invitations of mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not a trivial thing. It's not a, it's not a thing of relative indifference to refuse to come to Christ for pardon and forgiveness and new life when He speaks in His Word to you, to then say, not now, not today, another time, maybe. Heard it all before. It's just rolling over me. It's water off a duck's back. I, you know, it makes no impression. What a horrid, desperate condition you're in. What a grave moment to hear God say, I have mercy for you in my Son. Come and trust Him, and for you to yawn and say, no thanks. I'm good. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. He longs that you should come and know grace, not woe. Which will it be? Eternal destinies are being worked out. Perhaps even today under the sound of the preaching of the Word. Here are the priorities of this pulpit. May God make them the great priorities of our lives. We've got to get the pattern of God's grace right. You don't lead with what you do for Him. Instead, you put yourself in the dust. You cry, woe is me. And you look for grace. Grace is coming. Grace is available. Grace for you in Jesus. That's where to start the pattern of God's grace, the scope of God's Word. It is all focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gravity of God's work, I think about it, it makes me tremble. Maybe right now, tonight, today, as you listen, the great question of your eternity is being settled. Do you feel the gravity of God's work? What will you do in answer to His call? Will you come and trust in Christ? Let's pray together. Oh God, we know that in a room like this, with this number of people, there are certainly those who do not know your saving grace. Oh, would you have mercy on them 
now today here as they hear you saying, come to me, all who, weary, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Come to me. Turn and believe. Oh, God, help us, all of us, whether for the first time or anew now today, to come to you and to rest upon and in you, Lord Jesus. For we ask it in your name. Amen.